like to start in our usual way of just kind of gathering. Some of us in the middle of the night, some of us are in the, in the late middle of the evening, some of us are in the early evening. Kind of unwind from the day a little bit and just do a couple minutes of silence and breathe, you know, breathe in and deep and breathe out for as long as you can. I'm going to set the recording. Recording in progress. All right, Steve Wood, Recovered Alcoholic. Welcome to the Great Reality Book Study. So, uh, yeah, tonight we're continuing our journey through Doctor's Opinion. Last week we talked a lot about the history of him and uh, Silkworth and just kind of got into the first few pages. And, you know, before we get into, I want to look at, you know, talk a little more about step one. And we did it last week and uh, I always like to review step one when we're on step one. And I said this before, I'll, I'll probably say it 30 more times. There's a lot of pages on step one. There's a whole lot of pages and 35 pages in all. That's counting docs band. And that's because we're on this investigation. And, you know, the, the thing of docs pain is, is a starting point to that. And step one's the only step we do 100%. I'm not talking about abstinence. I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about you 100% convinced you're powerless overall. That's why step one is is the most important step, you know, because it's also the only step I need to understand 100%. The other steps I don't, because I'm just doing them. But if you're not willing, you know, to put, you know, to be, if you're not ready for step one, you know, nothing more can happen. You know, we, we can't, we, we don't want any lurking notions that one day we can, we can have a drink. You want to be convinced. And that's exactly why step one is the foundation. And if you look at, you know, you picture a foundation of a, of a let's say like a, a 30 story apartment complex, right? How vital, how vital is that foundation to that building? Right. Because it's the most, it, it, it's it's the most essential part of that building. Because any any structure, that structure must rest on that solid foundation. Because it's the base of which the, that entire large building is going to stand on. It's gonna, it's it's going to hold up all those heavy walls. That's not just the walls, but it's the roof, the weight. Is it, it anchors it all together. The most important thing about that foundation, when they're building it, it needs to last forever. Because you, it, the only way to redo a foundation would be to take out the whole building, right? So that, that foundation needs to last forever. So it's extremely imperative to, to pay attention to every detail, you know, that goes into that foundation, you know, and it will always, so it remains intact. And that's why they, you know, any builder takes the foundation very seriously. A lot of, a lot of building companies today bring in a separate company that builds the foundation. So in our book, we're building a spiritual structure and that begins with this foundation. 
is called the Willingness Foundation or the Readiness Foundation, you want to call it that. Are you ready to admit your powerless? Right? I said this before. If you're not ready to admit your powerless, nothing else can happen. So you're either ready or you're not. And, you know, some it takes years to become ready. Right? It takes years to get ready. So that's how important this foundation is. Just like that large building, we're building something that is going to, it has to be very important to the rest of our recovery. And we're going to build that foundation as this book study continues over the months and months and months we do this. So last time, you know, we talked about these inebriate asylums and alcoholics, you know, sole purpose was to keep alcoholics and addicts off the streets because they're criminals and rapists. And that's just the way the media, you know, the press will call it back then, put it out there. And to do that, you know, they made sure that actual alcoholics were diagnosed as mentally insane. And it's that further the stigma that alcoholism and addiction was solely a problem of the mind. You know, they would not even consider, they, they didn't want to hear there might be a physical reaction. And if they did, most doctors couldn't, couldn't put two and two together to figure out why they, you know, what they're talking about. That was until Silkworth came along. And he worked with 40,000 alcoholics slowly and, and with us for 38 years before we even existed. 38 years. That's crazy. Considering Bill Wilson was, I think it was 40, 44 when he got sober, I think. I remember. I forget. <laughs> but it's, it's a you know, crazy aspect to look at it like that. But his, but his allergy obsession concept changed Everything changed the world. It, what what he discovered was the missing link. Why people are real alcoholics, and you know it's very important to realize who this book is written for. I'm not trying to exclude anybody out, but it's written for the real alcoholic, the ones who cannot grasp regular regular um, you know human concepts. As here's how you stop drinking, but this radical concept that the body was sick. And not just the mind helped, you know, legions and legions of alcoholics and addicts get out of those mental hospitals. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, think about this for a second. It hasn't even been a hundred years that we're just scratching the surface. And it's like, even I heard a guy say this about the spirituality thing. You know, it's just the last hundred years that we've really started figuring out the spirituality thing. This last hundred years we started figuring out addiction. It's not even a hundred years yet because it won't be a hundred year anniversary of, you know, of AA and, you know, we, we got 10 more years for that. So it's been 90, 94 years that anyone even knew what alcohol was. No one knew what it was. So, so thousands of years it was like that. They were branded criminals and insane. So they were treated as such. So that's why I always say we're blessed that, you know, that these people came along, you know, that silver cross paths with Bill Wilson. So tonight we're going to, we're going to talk about the di our, our diagnosis. So if you go to a, you know, a, a doctor, the diagnosis is to determine and identify the nature of your problem, your illness, your disease, whatever. That's your diagnosis. You have cancer, you have a heart condition, you have a MS, whatever it is, right? So 
when a when a doctor gives you a diagnosis, you know, it's to ex, ex, explain to you precisely why you are sick, right? And that's what Silkworth's going to do. So we're on XXVI. And we're going to look at the old diagnosis first. And that's, you know, where it says it did not satisfy us. We're going to look at the old diagnosis before we get to the Silkworth's diagnosis. It says it did not satisfy us. We read this last week on Read Again. It did not satisfy us to be told that we cannot control our drinking just because we're maladjusted to life, that we're full fight friendly, outright maladefective. That's the old diagnosis of alcohol addicts and, and addicts. You know, they're crazy, maladjusted to life, full fight from reality. And even the addicts weren't satisfied. They knew it was something more. They just want to put us in another room, throw away the key, and bye. So we're going to go to XXV. I, 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 X, X, B, triple I. And they're going to give us the groundbreaking diagnosis that changed everything. This is a powerful paragraph. It's a very powerful paragraph. And it, it, there's several paragraphs in this book that just jump out at you. I mean, if you want to read just one paragraph on step one, if you had to, this, this would be the one. I mean, I'm not saying you just read, there's several paragraphs. I mean, there's four or five that really stand out, but this is the one. And it's just, but this is one of the paragraphs in this book that just jumps out. So it says, we believe, and so suggested years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics. So chronic is something that's not time off pot. <laughs> chronic is reoccurring, persistent, ongoing, and not always fatal, right? I heard a guy say that, you know, chronic can also mean stretched out over a period of time. It, it, yeah, that's why it's not always fatal. So the chronic alcoholic is a manifestation of an allergy. So, so manifestation is a sign that something exists, is present, right? Uh, my dad recently had skin cancer, right? He had it removed, but the, but the manifestation of that was, you know, horrible mark he had on his ear. Right, so it's a manifestation, the sign of an allergy. So when I read this the first time, I was like, "I don't break out in hives when I drink." That's my mind saying to me. And I told it to the sponsor I had, and my sponsor had me because I, I heard of this allergy thing before. Um, it was '96 when I was my first book study ever, and I heard these two guys speak, and this one little short guy broke down doctor's opinion. And I heard allergy and I had a, then I got a sponsor that night. He broke down the first set to me. So I heard of it before. I haven't explained allergy obsession under the influence before, <laughs> believe it or not. But, but so when I got to A in 2000, I fully, under, I, I don't know fully, but I understood I had an allergy obsession. I, I, and, and, but yeah, I mean, but it was always in my mind. Why do they call it an allergy? I don't, I thought it was kind of silly. You break on, you know, I don't break on hives. And my sponsor told me that he handed me an old beat up dictionary, like a 1930s one. And he had me look up on, in that 1930s dictionary. And it said abnormal reaction to a substance. Abnormal meaning away from normal. Do you have an abnormal reaction to alcohol or drugs? Whatever your thing is, once you start, do you have an abnormal reaction? a question that's final craving so craving is a powerful and uncontrollable desire for more 
And a phenomenon is a big word. It means a situation or fact that can't be explained. It's unexplainable. And he's calling this a unexplainable craving, phenomena craving. So phenomena craving would be is a physical allergy, the bodily, mentally different, abnormal reaction to alcohol after the first drink, after the first drink, leading the sufferer to crave for more, right? So I put it in my system, you know, have a drink, and all of a sudden, the, it, it feels more. I explained it to you a few weeks ago. It's just, it's the lack of proper enzymes in the, in the liver, and, you know, it, it that basically pickles it and stays there. And there's a lot more to it than that, but the simplest way. But it says the phenomenon craving is limited to this class, meaning the real alcoholic. It's limited to the real alcoholic and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Now, later on, we'll get into the hard drinker, the moderate drinker, and the hard drinker. You know, those people don't have the allergy. Uh, or they call it temperance drinkers, you know, when, when they drink, they get all they want, you know, to, if they, they also know how much they're going to drink beforehand. You know, we, we don't get all we want because of the allergy. We just keep going and going and going. Right. Since so we have a, so we have a physical reaction to alcohol that makes us a real alcoholic. It separates us from other drinkers. Here's one of the only warnings you see in this book. I mean, it might be another one somewhere, but this is one of the, the one of the only warnings that really stands out to me. These are allergic types can never safety because alcohol in any form at all. Now, is that going to stop a person that is a real alcoholic? Is it going to stop you from, you could have that knowledge and, and be dry and go, you know what? Wow. Now I know the secret. You know, I don't have to, you know, I'm a real alcoholic. Hmm. And I can never sleep with alcohol. There's my words right there. And all of a sudden, you know, that kicks in and the mental part kicks in and boom. It's just the way it is, you know? So that's one of the only warnings is these are trying to nurse these alcohol inform and all. And look at this. And once I formed the habit, found they cannot break it. So it's no longer a habit. A habit, you know, is a ritual or something you do over time. But found you cannot break it. People have a drinking habit or are an alcoholic. And so they found they cannot break it. Once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, and look at this part, their problems pile up on and they become solitary, difficult to solve. So you see the unmanageability there in the last sentence. Our problems pile up on us and we become solitary, difficult to solve. For ourselves, we can't solve it and other people can't. Yeah, we'll go to meetings and pile up in meetings and sit there and hope that, you know, someone's going to solve me somehow, solve my drink problem. You know, and, and they're talking about all problems pile up on us at once. You know, just the consequences, the lost friends, the family, the breakups, the rehab, also the insanity of the first drink. The insanity we can't stop drinking. The loss of self-confidence. Being restless, irritable, and discontent. Living with resentment and fear then the, uh, the human resources are gone beyond human aid. Astonishing, difficult to solve. Hopeless, impossible. Can't solve it. It's like our life is like a, a puzzle. 
that kind of gets thrown up in the air and all over the room and we need some we need something to help us put back together again. This is steps. And I heard a guy say one time, our life is like a puzzle, but you know, remember you go to some people's houses back in the day and they would have a outline of a puzzle and sit there for like six years. <laughs> that was kind of like our, our, our thing. I'll get around. I'll, I'll finish that one day. But ours is like a puzzle that went thrown up in the air. But the questions I always ask, Monsi, is how successful were you at managing your life, running your life, controlling it? How successful were you at that? Did you, you know, did you manage your life, or or, or did it manage you, or did you control your life, or did it control you? Because you control your drinking, or did it control you? So as long as you continue to experience unmanageability, your mind will seek out ease and comfort. It comes at once by taking a few drinks. You know, and the only way to overcome that unmanageability is 14, 49. To, and living in 10, 11, 12, living in 10, 11, 12, making those old amends. Could that, could that be that there's people in a place called Alcoholics Anonymous that, you know, sit around and at meetings and in complete unmanageability, yet they have stuff up on the wall they could take them out of that? Could that happen? Hmm. You know, I think like really what we have to look at here is stand out the moment. I mean, we have an abnormal reaction after the first drink that leads us to craving for more. We go on a run. Normal people don't do that. That is the bodily different part, and that's the allergy. What makes us alcoholic, but why would I go back to it if I know it's bad? What happens to my sound reasoning? What happens to my um choices so my son when he was two years old he's closer to three but he had an allergic reaction to peanuts butter turn blue stop breathing near-death experience now he's 11 years old he's still scared to death of peanut butter he won't get near it that's his logical conclusion because he almost died he still, at 11 years old, has the memory of that near-death experience. Can even tell you about it, where he was sitting and everything. It's sufficient enough that he will never eat that again. He will never, you know, eat peanut butter against his will or call me at 3 o'clock in the morning asking for peanut butter. <laughs> you know, so why do we continue to do what might kill us? You know, we have, we know we have this allergy. This final craving is that, I mean, it could, I mean, if I'm drinking against my will, if I'm drinking, once I start, I, I lose control and I'm drinking every drink against my will. This, that's a near-death experience as well. Craving for more. Where's the memory that's supposed to keep me in, in check? I mean, everything else in our life does that, Right. If you crash your car going 100 miles an hour, I'm sorry, you're, not gonna, you're probably not going to crash your car going 100 miles an hour again. Hopefully not. Well, we might. But why isn't the memory sufficient enough? Because we have an illness of the mind. And that's the old, they used to look at only. But it wasn't sufficient. But it, but that's, that illness of the mind is, is Bill called an obsession. It says, despite 
your deep conviction to never want to drink again or use again and knowing that it might kill you, you're going to do it anyways. You're going to swear it off one day and 15 minutes later be doing it again. So we have a, we have a physical reaction coupled with a reoccurring persistent idea of drinking or using that does not respond to reason, lacks choice. It's called obsession, mental obsession, mentally different. Um, Joe McQuaney used to say, we, we can't stop when we start. And when we are stopped, we can't stop from starting. As I said many times in here, I have a mind that condemns me drinking against my will and a body that condemns me to death. Bodily and mentally different from our fellows. That is the missing link that Silkworth brought to, to Towns Hospital. The physical allergy. Um, I, th I think you remember when in our second study I did, we went over um, books that um, early AA members read. And one of them, I mentioned that they read really close was William Duncan Silkworth's Manifestation of an Allergy. It was one of his journals. You can find them on silkworth.net. And describing a person with the allergy who, you know, so I'm going to read just a little bit of it to you. This is Silkworth's from, from the his medical journal, Manifestation of an Allergy. He cannot take it or leave it alone. He finds that he has to have a drink in the morning. Then he finds after more time that his hands shake. And when he signs his name, for example, later irritability and lack of concentration uh, serene. He is not the man, man temporarily he used to be. In order to meet these changes and increases, meet these changes and increases, Increasing symptoms, he is compelled to increase the amount he consumes and a prolonged spree replaces short intoxication. The phenomenon of craving is prominent and there's complete loss of appetite, insomnia, and dry skin, hyper motor activity. He has a feeling of anxiety which amounts to nameless terror. And this is a part that got me when I read this the first time. He presents a picture of a person who just finished a long race, but must have more stimulation to start once again. Think of a person when they win a marathon, when they run a marathon, they're like, uh, they're done at the end, right? Now, they're saying that same, you know, we look like a person who just ran a marathon, but we must find, find something to get us started once again. So spot on. Let's go back to XXVIII. Here we look at our big book, Tongue Twister. Frosty emotional appeal seldom suffices. <laughs> I love that. Our, you know, our parent. think about when your parents beg you to stop. Or your level, you know, any, your wife, your, your daughter, your husband. You know, the doctor telling you, you know, you gotta stop. People threaten to leave us. Children screaming in our face. Maybe the police. Or even... Your own appeal to stop with or without Salmo. You know, the obsession doesn't care about that stuff. It doesn't care about any of it. That's why interventions for real alcoholics don't work. You can have all your family there. They're going to tell you, hey, you, you, we're not going to speak to you again. You got the obsession that you're like, okay. It helps maybe for people that are high, more on the, the high end, you know, but. The message, back to the book, the message 
which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. You know, what has depth and weight? The steps, that's the message. It must have depth and weight. And it begins with this allergy obsession. You know, that must be explained. Nothing else, you know, there's, there's nothing else to tell anyone in step one. There's nothing else you can tell people in step one. But people want to add stuff to it all the time. In nearly all cases, direct deals must, there's a must right there, be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. So this, so the steps are a roadmap to being grounded in a power greater than yourself. They're a roadmap to recreating your life. If, if any feel that the uh, psychiatrist directing, he goes, if any feel that as a, psych, as a psychiatrist directing a hospital for alcoholics, we appear somewhat sentimental. Let them stand, stand with us for a while on the firing line. See the tragedy of the sparing wives, the little children. Let the, sol- let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work. And even their sleeping moments in the most cynical will not, so sick will not wonder why we accepted and encouraged this, mo- this movement. That's amazing what he just said. He said, if, you know, if, if, you want to, if, if you're wondering why I'm backing up this Alcoholics Anonymous thing, you come and you walk in my shoes for a day, he's saying. Look at the, 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 the sad wives. Look at the children. You know, you know, you be the one that comes and tell the wife their husband's dead. He goes, he's saying, we accept and encourage this movement. Another one of his endorsements. He says, we feel after many years, after many years of experience that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men than the altruistic movement now growing up among them. There's another endorsement again. This guy's got one endorsement after another. Yeah. I mean, that's one, why he was so good at this. You know, I mean, why this perfect person is, you know, you can feel his emotions when he talked about that. You know, all his years, nothing has worked except the steps. Says men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. Did we drink for any other reason? You know, (laughs) the cessation is so elusive that while they may admit it's injurious, meaning damage, harm, they cannot at their time differentiate the true from the false. To them, the alcohol life seems the only normal one. So I'm going to give you guys an example. I want to show you the example of um, the alcohol life being the only normal one that he's talking about. What, is, what, what does that look like? Go to page 151, bottom of that page. Easy to remember, 151. <laughs> so it says, now and then, a serious drinker, he's talking about a real alcoholic, being dry at the moment, so he's stone dry, maybe he's trying recovery. I don't miss it at all. Feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a sally. We know our friend, that person, is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. You know, that scared boy, you know, says something, whistles, whatever, to keep up his spirits, so he's not scared of the dark. Look, look at this part. He fools himself 
he fools himself innerly. He would give anything to, to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with it. I hear people say that in meetings before. I don't miss drinking, but I, if I could get away with it, I would. And I'm like, what? Where's the obs- I mean, that's the obsession. This is saying inwardly, we do anything to take after. And get with. He presently tries the old game again. And he isn't happy about his sobriety. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Look at this. Someday he'll be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. Then he will know, as, as few do, he will be at the jumping off place. He, he will look for the end. He will wish for the end. That's the alcoholic life being our only normal one. Go back to XXVIII. To them, life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented. So that's high anxiety. Easily pissed off and not satisfied. They're not separate things like one day I have restless, one day I'm irritable. They're talking about when you're dry. I'm easily pissed off. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm high anxiety, easily pissed off, not satisfied. They're all crammed together in one ugly emotional pit. Unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort. So besides alcohol's, you know, nostalgia obsession you know we drink for get a feeling of ease and comfort and that's an in control feeling you know ease and comfort when non-alcohol drinks non-alcohol got the allergy obsession they have an out of control feeling adverse feelings beginning with you know they get lethargic and lightheaded which is why they, they stop more hard drinkers the you know middle of the road guys that don't have the allergy still um, they get those above symptoms but they get nauseated and and, you know, they continue drinking, they get sick, and they stop based on their drinking history. They remember their limit, and they can, like I said, they can always tell you how much they're going to drink. We can't because of allergy. So the restless, irritable, and discontent, unless they can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, that come, which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks we see others taking with impunity, and that means without punishment. After they succumb to desire again, that's obsession of the mind. That's we have succumb to the obsession of the mind, as many do. And the phenomenal craving develops. It's craving for more. They pass the well-known stages of a spree. Because it's abandoned just to run. After all phenomenal craving. They pass the well-known stages of a spree. Emerging with most with a firm resolution not to drink again. So I'm going to share the screen up here. I'm going to put this in simplest terms possible. Tell a little story. So hypothetically, I've actually shared meetings like this before by telling how I, how I drink. I usually do, but I don't do it on the screen. But so let's say I left jail, make it easy like that. Say I got out of jail and I got, I just, say I left rehab, even better. I left rehab and I got a desire to drink. So I got an obsession. So what do I do? I drink, get loaded, breathing develops. I go on a spree off and running again but I stop with a firm resolution not to drink again right maybe in the back of a cop car and I but this but I make the decision to only go to meetings no steps so I so I'm gonna go AA CA NA um SA whatever I'm gonna go to 
wherever I can find. And I might go to, maybe I'll go to a church. Maybe I go to the shrink. But I'm not doing those steps. And the problem, even with all those well-known groups, I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. High anxiety, usually pissed off and dissatisfied. Coupled with being, you know, that's easily annoyed. High anxiety, easily pissed off. Resentments, fear, anger. You know, I'm not satisfied with my life. It's not going my way. Everyone's wrong. I'm a victim. And this builds up and builds up until I need ease and comfort. And I go, and, and this whole time I have the desire to drink. The obsession never left. So I'm sitting there at those groups I'm going to who are trying to help me with that restless, irritable, discontent mindset. And the obsession with blinding me and whipping my ass every single moment in there. I just go right back to it and I just keep doing that stop. But eventually, you know, that's, see, that's the cycle of drinking. That's the alcoholic death. He talks about in the big book is that cycle. It, it, when they mention alcoholic death, they don't mean buried in the ground. They mean the cycle of drinking this. And it's actually an endless cycle. Cause this is what can happen. You may not have a stop. You may just keep going and going and going. One of my friends just came back after 11 years of being gone. And six months ago, and he's back doing well again. But he said, 11 years just seemed like not that long. He goes, it was just, it's like I was spinning in a hurricane, tornado. But that's, that, that's where we're at with that. That's where we're at. And it says, this, this is repeated over and over again. Now look at this. Here's our saving grace. Unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, there's very little hope as a recovery. What's interesting here, see, here's what's interesting. They're going to say there's very hope, a little very hope as a recovery, right? But it's the same thing that all these guys say. But do they know how to produce it? You know, like uh, Charles Jung couldn't do it, right? Psychic change is, is definitely not a word you here at the grocery store, everyday talk. First of all, psychic means mind. So they must be telling us that we need a, a change of our thinking. We can't produce that on our own. You know, we can't. If we could, we, we wouldn't be sitting here on a, you know, a Thursday night where we can be, you know, hanging out with our family, whatever. So, so they're telling us we need to change our thinking. And I mean, here's the thing. To have a psychic change, I mean, I could go to all those groups I mentioned. I could, I could go to church. I could, get a, I could get married. I could get a new job. I could get a raise, have a psychic change. I could even go to a meeting and have a psychic change. But that's not what he mentioned here. He didn't say, and this is person has a psychic change. There's a key word in there, entire psychic change. Entire. Entire means complete or whole, right? Complete psychic change is not easily achieved because we're talking about radical changes to our thinking and belief systems that we've had our whole life. A belief system is centered on fear, anger, guilt, and driven by things like self-esteem, high self-esteem, low self-esteem, pride, fear. But here's the thing. If I can find a way 
to have this complete, this radical psychic change, complete psychic change. When this radical change occurs, our thinking changes. And when our thinking changes, our beliefs totally change. When our beliefs change, our desires change. And when our desires change, our desire to drink goes away. Radical change in our thinking and beliefs shifts our desires. In other words, the obsession's gone. The only avenue that I can vouch for 110% that can do that is the steps. And you could argue and say, hey, well, what about this and that? There's, there's some cool things out there that might give you a, a, um, a psychic change, even a complete psychic change, but can I recreate it? This is about reading being, I can be reborn over and over and over again. Let's, let's read a little bit more about entire psychic change. Let's go to page 27. And this is Carl Jung describing a psychic change. Middle of 27. All right. It says they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding force of the lives of these men are suddenly cast on one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Wow. Think of that for a second. Talk about huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. That means to get rid of and redo. We do that in six and seven. And what happens is ideas, emotions, and actions, which are once the guiding forces of our lives, are cast out, thrown to the side. And we're given a new set of conceptions of mothers to live by. And not just that, they dominate us. This is telling me the steps are not about getting anything. They're about losing something. Right? It's about letting some stuff go. So how does an entire psychic change occur? Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Living in ten, eleven, twelve. Continuous nurturing of the psychic change the rest of our lives. For this, for the sake of it, psychic change is the same thing as spiritual conversion, which is the same thing as spiritual experience and awakening. Just other words for it. It's not a medical term, psychic change. It's a spiritual term. Very spiritual. Um, let's go back to X. X-I-X. It says, on the other hand, on the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who has so many problems, he he, uh, despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules, and that's making my old amends and living in 10, 11, 12. That's a few simple rules I must continue to do. It says men and women, I'm sorry, men and women, men have cried out to me a sincere despairing appeal doctor i can't go on like this i have everything to live for i must stop but cannot you must tell me kenny no 
face of this problem if the doctor is honest with himself. Now we're getting to the doctor. He must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. We sing is there's nothing I can do. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power. This is the doctor talking. I mean, did you ever go to a doctor and your doctor said something more than human power needs to help you here? <laughs> yeah, right. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Necessary psychic change. The aggregate, that means collection of many, the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychic, from psychic effect is considerable. We physicians must admit that we made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to ordinary psychological approach. That almost sounds like a, a picture him speaking at a medical convention and saying that. He's talking about alcoholism. We physicians admit that we have made little impression on the problem, alcohol problem as a whole. Many do not respond to ordinary cycle. And, you know, he said, he said many cry out for help. Everything they tried has little impression. You know, most of them do not even respond to psychological approach. This is another endorsement because he's saying they need the steps. Right, he's saying, forget what, all the words we can say. They get them on these steps. <laughs> I do not hold with those who believe that alcohol is entirely a problem of mental control. So he's going against the old way there. I've had many men who who had, for example, worked for a period of months on the some some problem or business deal which was settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink and a day and. So they took a drink a day or so prior to the date, and then the final craving at once began paramount to all other interests, so the important appointment was never met. Never happened to you? Or you snap out of it and go, oh, my God. I mean, I had a bad problem remembering something I was supposed to do, and I forget about it. I look back when I used to, used to drink, and you wake up on a Thursday and going, oh my God, did I go that thing on Saturday? Did I go there? Did, you know, did I call my kid on his birthday? He says, these men are not trying to escape. That's what I say. You know, knockhawks, whether they're hard drinkers or just normies, I say that you're trying to escape. No, here's what they are drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. Has anyone been there? There are many situations with the rise of the phenomenal craving which caused the men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. Talking about suicide. Supreme sacrifice. So think about how many people he had to find out committed suicide. I've been sober 24 years. Almost. And up to about eight, about eight years ago, I stopped counting. And so eight years ago, I had known 11 people commit suicide while dry, while sober. But I stopped counting. And they all had one thing in common. They were unmanageable, dry, because they were not doing the steps. 
They ain't killing themselves because they were drinking. They're drinking in their mind. You know, remember it says that if you, you know, if, 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 he goes, you found it. He says, um, um, I forget. I was going to say, sorry. <laughs> um, so there are very few people in recovery, you know, who have not thought of suicide. I, I mean, is there anyone, I doubt there's anyone here who's not thought of suicide at, at, when they're dry. I know I, I, I did, and when, only when I was bone dry. I remember an old timer told me something years ago. He told me two things saved alcoholics from suicide alcohol or the steps. But the problem is, what calms the mind down craves more. The steps don't. The steps only crave more God. You know, not many alcoholics could kill themselves from drinking, not intentionally at least. The classification, the classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and is much detailed outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagons for keeps. They are over-remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. The psychopath refers to a person suffering from an unpredictable, aggressive, violent behavior. They rarely show empathy or remorse for their actions. They have trouble interacting with people. Their social things like way off. They're not they're uncomfortable living a normal life. They, you know, they live in like a lot of self-doubt, depression, isolation. You know, the psychopath comes from the Greek words psyche, which means mind, and patho, which means suffering. Psychopath. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand and his environment. We have a word for that. It's called denial, <laughs> right? Unwilling to admit denial. And that's the refusal to believe or accept the truth. That's all it is. You know, fooling ourselves about the reality of our situation or running away from it, escaping it. You know, it's, I, I, there's different forms of denial. There's denial that we have a drinking problem. You know, early on when our friends and family told us, you know, we, you know, there was the denial there. The denial that um, runs way, you know, there's, there's denial that runs way, way deeper, and that is the denial that we have an allergy. I had a guy that I sponsored, and he kept coming back and coming back and coming back. He always admitted he had an allergy obsession, and he kept drinking, and finally he admitted, he says, dude, I was, I was secretly in denial that I had the allergy. I wanted to prove myself I didn't have it. It didn't work very well. You know, you know, and, you know, I, I went from rehab to rehab to rehab, and I went to meetings and meetings, and I sat down with a sponsor, and he tells me, you know, I have an allergy obsession to alcohol. The only chance is to do the steps. I was like, 
I'm not that sick. I'm not as sick as you guys. You know? My first AME meeting ever, a 20 year, 20 year old punk. I'm sitting there, I look up on the wall, I'll get my course up signed, and it says, you know, it's 11 years away from getting sober, but powerless over alcohol. I thought these people are screwed. I'm not like them. <laughs> the only chance is the steps. You know? So, I, but for myself, I want to try you know, different ways to beat it. You know, the right church, the right therapist, the right rehab, the right meetings. I'm going to show these guys I'm not sick as, as they are. I can beat this on my own. And there's some people, the only thing you cannot beat on your own was alcohol. You know, in a, in a few years after being, you know, I got chewed up and spat out, you know, I, I looked at another sponsor before he came in and asked me about allergy obsession. I looked at him before he, he spoke. I said, I'm defeated because allergy obsession at what my ass this time. I'm ready to do the steps. And he goes, explain it to me. And I explained the allergy and he goes, you got it. You got it. And he got tears in his eyes. And <clears throat> there is a type of, of who, Back to the book. Here is there is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he could take drink without danger. I, I knew a guy who did like a church recovery group. It was, it was cool. I mean, they had steps, somewhat steps there. You know, I guess you would call it. But they never had the allergy, the allergy obsession. They didn't have a, a disease concept. So what happens is after a few six or seven years of being dry. Someone goes, hey, man, I wish you could try this wine. This is a great old vintage. You know what? I've been away from alcohol for a while. I can do that. You know? And that's the type who thinks they can, you know, do without the steps. So, you know, they never learn about that. So you don't learn about the allergy of such, and you eventually get to think you can do that. Next thing you know, they're out on a run and back in wherever they go to. There's a manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom an entire chapter could be written. Manic depressant, they call it bipolar nowadays in so many words. And, you know, bi means two. So bipolar is having two opposite directions, two opposite poles, the way to look at it. You know, a person with, you know, basically you say like, like low moods followed by elevated moods, up and down. Emotions go up and down. Um, mania and depression. Remember, you know, what it says and how it works. There are those two who have suffered grave emotional and mental disorders, but they too can recover the capacity to be honest. This thing is, can save anyone's ass. I don't care how crazy you are. I don't care what, you know, you've gone through. I, I sponsored um, a man who has borderline severe autism. You know, he comes across a little goofy when he talks, and he knows it. You know, he's 39 years old, but he suffers from that. And nothing could ever get past his, like his high manic stuff he would go through except alcohol. And he did the steps. There are those two of brave emotional and they have capacity to be honest. Beautiful. What is honesty? 
It's the awareness of where I'm at. That's all it is. Do I have a resentment? Do I have fear? Do, do I have this allergy? Self-honesty. People who fail, those who cannot be honest with themselves, it says in this book. Back to the book. Then there's the types of no one would ever respect except alcohols upon them. They're often intelligent, friendly people. That's the type of person that might be successful at everything they do. Look at Bill Wilson, successful stockbroker. He tried to sell everything else except alcohol. It shocks you. I knew a guy who was an amazing baseball player, straight student in college, and then started drinking after he got a baseball injury. He said, Steve, he goes, nothing ever have I not been able to fix except this. That's the bottom right there. All these and many others have one s symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we suggested, may be the manifestation of an allergy which officiates these people and sets them apart from distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment permanently eradicated. And, you know, eradicated means eliminated, right? Any treatment. That's a, that's a doctor saying that. The only relief, so Silkworth's only thing he could offer them is this, because he didn't have any steps to offer them. The only relief that we suggest is entire abstinence. That was what he, what he offered them, remember? His, his uh, solution was abstinence, and he had no recovery plan. He had 2% recovery rate, 90% failure rate, and 2% may not have been alcoholics. This is immediately precepts us in a seething cauldron debate. You know, earlier we discussed our diagnosis of the allergy obsession when, when you know, you get the diagnosis from a doctor. They give you a prognosis. What's a prognosis? It's an estimation of the course, you know, it's going to take. You know, here's the medicine you got to take. Here's everything else that goes with it, right? Here's how, here's how long you might live. What's the likely outcome? Will you recover? So most prognoses are built on statistics nowadays. So let's look at the statistics at the time. 40,000 alcoholics, 2% recovery rate. That's his statistics. So here's his prognosis with those statistics. Much has been written pro and con, but among his physicians, the general opinion seems to be that most chronic alcoholics are doomed. Let that sink in for a second. That's our prognosis that we're doomed. It's a harsh word. It means condemned to death or ruin. How would you feel if a doctor told you you're doomed for anything? Back to the book. What is the, is the solution? It's a great question. You know, perhaps the best I can is relating one of my experiences. The man he's describing here is Hank Parkhurst. And he's the guy that helped get the big book published. Bill Wilson's right-hand man. About one year prior to, to this experience, a man was brought in to be treated for chronic alcoholism. He had, he, he, he had but partially recovered from a gastric hemorrhage. It seemed to, to be a case of pathological mental deterioration. He had lost everything worthwhile in life. It was only drinking, only, sorry, only living with one might say to drink. He frankly, he, he frankly admitted and believed 
that for for him there was no hope. Following the elimination of alcohol, there are found to be no permanent brain injury. He accepted the plan outlined in in his in this book. One year later, he called to see me, and I experienced a very strange situation. I knew the man by name and partially recognized him, his features. But all their all resemblance ended. From a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck had emerged a man brimming over with life, reliance, and, and contentment. I talked to him from some time, but was not able to bring myself to feel I had known him before. To me, he was a stranger, so he left me. A long time has passed with no return to alcohol. One of my um, closest friends in recovery was this guy named Dr. Mark. And Dr. Mark was an amazing boy. He was an addiction medical specialist, but he was also a mushroom doctor. He did surgery too. And he did an amazing presentation of doctor's opinion. His nickname was when he was drinking and he used to show up at his friend's house with all the pills he got mad because he was a doctor. They called him Dr. Miltown. Um, and uh, he told a story about a guy who they would bring him in and his clothes would be so saturated, you know, stuck to his body from filth. They would have to cut off his clothes and jumpstart him and get him to drink again. And the guy would say, no, I, I, I'm not ready to do this and blah, blah, blah. And one day he's in the emergency room and he's looking over a patient. The guy taps him on the shoulder and he turns around and he goes, hey, doc, how's it going? He's like, I don't know who you are. It was that homeless guy. But over a year sober, spiritually awoke. And he goes, I did not recognize him at all. And he had known that guy for 10 years. And I've known people too. I, 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 the rehab I, I sponsor at for, for many years, I see those guys in the obituary columns and panhandling and stuff. But there's amazing when you see a guy and you saw how low he, he, how good he was in the rehab. And then he goes back out and you see him all shrunk up and you see him again. It's a recovery. You don't recognize him. So when I need a mental health, I often think of another case brought in by a physician prominent in New York. The patient had made his own diagnosis of deciding his situation as hopeless, had hidden in a deserted barn, determined to die. He was rescued by a search party and in desperate condition brought to me. Following his physical rehabilitation, he had talked with me in which he frankly stated that he, had, that he thought treatment was a waste of effort, unless I could assure him, which no one ever had, that mm-hmm. in the future he would have the willpower to resist the impulse to drink. Wow. His alcohol problem was so complex, his desperation was so great that he felt his own hope would would be thrown what we call moral psychology. And we doubted if ever even that would affect any effort. However, he did become sold on this ideas contained in this book and he had not had a drink for many years. I see him now, and then he made a fine specimen of manhood and one could meet. He says, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book. Oops, sorry. While well, he may read his book, and though he may come to scoff, 
he may remain to pray. I mean, that's a, a powerful reading right there, you know, and, you know, the, it, it's just very powerful, the whole doctors of pain, you know, and the, you know, the, the, the main thing is, is to look like this is, what do we learn out of doctors of pain? When we learn we're, we're powerless. Right. I do what it might, you know, kill me against my will, like condemn me to death. Once I start, I can't stop. It takes away reason and takes away choice. Convinces me I'm beyond human aid. If so we learn about human aid and beyond human aid, I, I'm living in hell one day to the next because my, my human powers failed me. Can it help me? Being convinced we're, we're hopeless. Right. And so we learn about the hopelessness. I feel utterly without hope. I can be this. The door is locked and the key is thrown away. I don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, all I can do is admit defeat. And we learned about defeat. I'm broken. I kind of put myself back together again. That pays the way to reconstruction. I mean, even though I'm defeated, I can now convince I need power. And only a real alcoholic knows what it's like to be defeated by this disease. And only a real alcoholic knows what it's like to reach within and find the strength to seek power. I mean, how many times have we thought, you know, if only I could have stopped, if only I could have control, if only I was normal. Right now, let, let go of if only, you know, that, that's the thing. And look into the deep darkness of, of your abyss and your inmost self and admit the truth. Remember, they said before, the end justifies the means. Next week, we're going to look at Bill's story, and we're going to look at what's called the doom curve. So I have a list of 30 doom curves in the first part of Bill's story. It should be a lot of fun. Recording stopped. So, is there any statements or questions anyone wants to make? Jason. Hey, what's up, Steve? Um, I, I have a question. I just kind of want to, you know, I think I know the answer to it, but maybe you could touch down on it. Um, you know, you is the only, what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic theology? I mean, do you think, like, say the hard drinker, you know, somebody that drinks similar to me or whatnot, um, possible for them to have the obsession for alcohol, but what really separates us is, is the allergy? Well, yeah, definitely, because um, I think that's a lot of the hard drinkers have an obsession with wanting to get drunk, but they don't have, the difference is, is once they put it in their body, they don't, you know, they don't want it anymore. You know, they only want a little bit, but it's definitely got that obsession. I mean, look at people who do, like, some of the chemical drugs, you know, there's a lot of obsession there than there is, you know, as physical. But definitely, definitely, I think that it's not the same as coupled with the allergy, though. When you mix the allergy obsession together, it turns into a lightning bolt, you know, because now you're, you're drinking, you're, you're telling yourself, I need to go have that drink, and you forget the fact. I don't think this, the real alcoholic 
the hard drinkers forget the fact that what happened to them last time. Or they think Dave's got an obsession to go and drink, but it's not the same. Yeah. But and you definitely have to have the allergy and be an alcoholic. And then once you're like on a run, right, and you're like full-blown uh, allergy, do you think that the while you're in, you know, the phenomenon of craving and you're on a run, do you think that the the mental obsession coexists with that at the same time? Or is that just kind of like on a back burner? Is that not really? I think it's, it's different I, for everyone. I think it's kind of the mind, the, the mind of the obsession is still there, but the craving, the, the allergy kicks in. But you got to remember that the, the, the allergy, it craves, it's, it's, there's a mental, you know, it's all, it's all mental at, at the end of the day, but it's physical. My, my body physically craves it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I would say the allergy is more, maybe more prominent, but as soon as I like, let's, let's say I take three or four sips and I crave more, if I put it down, I have to go run an errand. What am I thinking about the rest of the time? That's it's, it. It's less off, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's insanity. Yeah, I just feel like it got to a point where like my obsession, I just, I stopped thinking it was going to be different. I knew it wasn't going to be different. I knew I was heading for trouble, you know what I mean? But I couldn't put it down because of that damn allergy, you know, the phenomenon of craving. So, right. I, yeah, that, that was it. Right, right, right. Uh, Greg. Steve, you spoke about the entire psychic change, and that would equate to the obsession being gone, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how does that equate to somebody who's just dry? sober bunch of years and now is a dry drunk um you mean what's the equivalence i mean i don't understand what you're saying i'm saying so that person who's dry sober whatever might have picked up other addictions anyway so the obsession for alcohol has been gone but they're dry they have the 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 tendencies to whatever that they're just dry so how does how do we equate the psychic change with that if the obsession's gone already well i mean they still have the restless hero discontent the person that that's dry is always going to have some type of the mental obsession in there right they're going to have they're going to be fighting it and the restless airborne discontentness is just their, their mindset they're in they're you know the, the, everything's anxiety everything's piss everything's frustration and everything is uh not not satisfied with anything right there, the psychic change is me t- taking the steps it's a result of taking the steps to have that, that, that mind change. There is no psychic change. There is no complete psychic change. Maybe a, maybe a, maybe a regular psychic change where I realize something, but I don't know if I answered your question correctly or not, but. Cause he goes as far as to say our way of living has its advantages for all. Right. So, which I, which I utterly agree with. So, I wonder if the psychic change goes beyond just the obsession for alcohol. I think the, the, the psychic change could actually go on to 
a better way of life, a better oh, way of coping, a better way of, of, of living, a better way of functioning. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you got to remember is once you do these steps and you're past step one and you have an awakening, it's not, it's, and the obsessions, I mean, like, for instance, today, if, if I get a resentment or frustration, I'm not, I'm not worried about drinking. I'm worried about me getting back on track with my, my relationship with God. It's no longer about that. It's always growing spiritually and keep growing spiritually. It's no longer about, it's alcohol's, that's way, way long gone in the past. You know, that's why I don't understand when people say I'm an alcoholic, you know, um, or I'm recovering, you know, <laughs> you know, but it, the steps are, you know, psychic change is good for anybody. You know, I've, I've, I've seen people, I've, take, I've taken people to the steps of more alcoholics at all. Just, uh, I guess you could say real nutcases, so to speak, that had a complete psychic change, you know? Did you have any other questions? Because I agree with you. I've, I've tried different ways to, to beat this. I've tried uh, therapy, different types of therapy. I've tried church, tried intense Bible study, and, and still came to the same point that, that something is still missing. It's just not the same, even with all that self-knowledge. That's why I absolutely love this stuff. I, I, I really love this stuff. So thank you. No, you did a, you did a, as always, you did a, you did a great job. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Doug. The covered alcoholic. Thank you, Steve, again, for another great evening of, uh, of intensive big book. Um, you know, just a question that was posed before, you know, I, I, I thought about that myself, you know, which is more prevalent. It, 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 in the book, it says, you know, if when drinking, have little control of the amount you take or, or um, when uh, or when you honestly want to, you find you cannot quit entirely, right? It says or, but I think someone, I heard this somewhere and it rang true to me, is that I, I think it's both. Because if, if I have the allergy, but not the obsession, well, then I go out on a spree, I wake up remorseful, make a firm resolution not to drink again, and guess what? I don't drink again. Because right. I don't have the obsession. But if I have the obsession and not the allergy, so I have the obsession to drink, I go out, but I, I can stop with two. I don't have a problem. I can go home. So it seems to me that I got to have, that what makes me a real alcoholic is that I have both. Because one without the other, it doesn't create that, that recurrent endless cycle of, of the spree, remorse, and drinking again. Right. That makes is it right there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I. Yeah. Thank you. No problem. Tim. Hey guys, Tim, recovered alcoholic. I was going to touch on a couple of the things that have been said. Did you ever, when you were six drinks in, were you thinking about stopping to get two cases on the way home from the bar? Yeah. You're already drunk. So the obsession goes hand in hand with the allergy, right? I was always six drinks in. I was thinking about, was there going to be enough for the rest of the night? Do I have to hit the liquor store before it closes at midnight? 
what do I have to do to have enough? That's the obsession still working while I'm drunk, right? Or I'm worried about the line that's lined up at the bartender. That's why I didn't like drinking in bars, right? The other people wanted the bartender's attention, and that bothered me greatly, <laughs> right? Because I'm worried about running out. I can't go on the dance floor and dance without facing the table to make sure nobody gets my drink. Doesn't matter how many drinks I've had. So the obsession's still there. But keep in mind, we've met people who have the out, the addiction, the problem drinker who's addicted, and we get them detoxed, and they never take another drink. I had a really good friend with 34, 35 years sober. I don't think he was a real alcoholic, and this touches on what Greg was talking about. And we talked about it through the years. He was a big party boy in the city. Um, they went out drinking every night, he and, he and his roommate, and they had lots and lots of fun night after night after night after night, year after year. His, part, his roommate came into the program, got sober. He drugged Jim in. Jim had problems detoxing. But once he detoxed, he never took another drink. Just like somebody who, who had an allergic reaction to peanut butter. Once he got three or four days away from it, he goes, by God, I'll never do that again. But Jim did not suffer from the bedevilments, page 52. What I like to call the agnostic promises. If you remain agnostic, you get the bedevilments in sobriety, right? So the spiritual malady is the solution to the problem. And we get the spiritual malady by working the steps, which is where I stayed confused for 13 years. I, I, I read it off the wall, but it wasn't until a little guy set me down that knew what he was talking about. And he said, what do you, what do you, can you believe that millions of alcoholics got sober using clear cut directions in the big book? Yes or no? I said, yes. He said, we're done with step two. Why? Because he knew he knew that if he got me through the steps, I was going to have my own spiritual awakening. And I did. I got to step four and five and had a spiritual awakening. I had a spiritual awakening with that guy that afternoon. But it's it, so the spiritual awakening may come, but uh, Steve touched on it. You got Carl Jung saying huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. You've got Dr. Silkworth saying psychic change in the back of the book, The Spiritual Experience. They stole that from William James. He said a personality change sufficient to overcome alcoholism. And all of those things explain the same thing that AA calls it, the spiritual malady. When the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. That's the promise on the bottom of page 64, and that was certainly my experience. And that's my experience working with a lot of other people. When we get over the uncomfortableness, when we get past the bedevilments, when we get down to our own truth, the, the obsession goes away and we get the 10-step promises. The problem is resolved. I'll leave it there. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kikaya, alcoholic from Sweden. Yeah, I, uh, before I came to AA, I, I went to a psychiatrist and he gave me the diagnosis borderline. That was very, very popular in Sweden in the beginning of 2000, uh, 99-2000. Anyway, uh, uh, he gave me medicine, and I, I didn't. It didn't work out because he didn't understood, and me neither at that time. 
that I was an alcoholic because I thought I had control. Anyway, it doesn't matter how many diagnoses I have because the psychiatrist wants to to diagnose me with other ones, but I'm I'm just telling her I'm an alcoholic. You can you can put whatever diagnose on me. You can. It only makes me to have more tools to 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 handle my my life and that 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 which has worked now for nearly twenty four years. It was eight months and twenty three years this Monday, and and uh, it doesn't. I can't m- medicine it with with. Uh, with the help of medicine that doctors in common gives me, I have to do. I have to do and live in the program that that has worked for me in every affairs. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you, everybody, for being here, and thank you, Steve, dear brother. Mohammed. Hi, Steve. Uh, good to see you. Thank you for the message. And um, the thing is, I've got ADHD. Can you, speak, so, can you speak a little louder? It's hard to hear you. I said, hello, Steve. Um, thank you for the message. And I was just in the gym. So oh, okay. It's always good to see you. The thing is, um, I know, okay, uh, irritable, discontent, and restless. That is that is me. But... Uh, there is, uh, you know, I, some people, they have other psychological problems as well, like uh, ADHD and OCD. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, not being able to focus and, you know, I'm, I'm chasing dopamine, and, you know, excitement, you know, you know, I don't think about drugs or alcohol, you know, and um, even um, in 10 years, I haven't had one craving, uh, and even, you know, I'm a dancer, and I can't go came from, thinking, but I hate it, I just get it, I just hand it to the reason, I don't even think about it, it's, it's, it, it, it messed me up, I hate it, even each time I use drugs, I hate it. is not there, but I know if I do it, the guilt inside me, some people, they won't come back. I know I won't come back because, you know, I will go to finish myself. So, so I'm not gonna, I won't do it. I will relapse. Relapse for me is equals death. But, you know, this being irritable and hyper-vigilant and, you know, this letting people get to me and, you know, being that irritable, vigilant and hyper-vigilant. That is my problem today. Today is not alcohol or drugs, you know. I mean, procrastination is my problem. It's controlling others. The fears are my problem. You know, 
my paranoia is the problem. You know? my from childhood is the, my problems, you know. And, you know, this is the things that's bothering me. And my depression is my problem, you know. I go down, so down with ADHDs like this, you know, when I go down. I mean, my insomnia is a problem. I can't sleep, you know, I can't not asleep for three days, you know, and I just lose it. Doctor has given me tablets and I don't take it, I don't take it, I don't take it. Until I, my mind, then I say, okay, it's 24 hours plus and I haven't slept, then I have to take it. So these things is my problem. My anger inside me is a problem. And this anger, uh, it does make lots of problems for me. Yeah, and get from me, from people, from imperfection world, imperfection people. Even in the program, somebody comes and acts like, oh, I think him, look at me, everybody's done bad to me. You know, obviously, you know, just bad. These things are my problems. The acceptance, you know, humility, that God, okay, I, I, I can't do the human, okay, I, I can't even accept myself, okay, let God help me to do that. This is the thing, sometimes I don't even want to see God, and I'm suffering, but I'm, I, I don't even ask for help. This is my problem, alcohol, drugs, it's not my problem. Thank you, Steve. God bless you. Um, and another thing I was going to ask you was, can you put in a group the voice of this tonight? Say it again. Can you put the voice of uh, recorded recorded voice? Yeah, it will be on speak? YouTube. It will be on YouTube, yeah. Can you put it in the group? Because there's lots of um, uh, voices in there. Oh, yeah, I just can't find it or... Is it possible uh, to put it in the I chat? have shared it in, in the chat where you can find the recordings. It's on YouTube. Yeah. So look in the chat. I can put, yes. a, I'll put, I'll put a, a direct li uh, link for you. Yeah. yeah, please. God bless, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any, feedback, any feedback, give it to me. Thank you. Uh, Fernando. Hi, it's really a pleasure and honor. Thank you so much, Woody. Good to see all you people that are hungry for the obsession. We got a new obsession. <laughs> it's really nice to be here. I, I zoned in, you know, I, I was tired. and But the information really uh, started, uh, you know, it just, it's just nice to see, you know, our... Our, my objective is the first, I had like three questions. One is to, how do I explain the allergy better? You know, I had a hard time understanding it, you know. And then the other was, I like the way you said with impunity, impunity which is, uh, you know, without any uh, new scars or, or uh, fights or, or problems drinking. How, and that, that one was a... a where you're, you see people and your imagination runs with you, you know, so we've got to protect our imagination. And then the, uh, the other one was uh, moral psychology. 
You know, I tried to study that and looked in the dictionary and I came up with the conception that, uh, like for instance, I like to start 9 a.m. meetings because everybody is attuned to going to school at 9 a.m., you know. You go to school, you normally, they already have a moral psychology of tapping into that that time period. So that's the way I see moral psychology. But my 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 question is, is uh, is there anything else in the big book where uh, I can, there probably is, and I'm not remembering right now, is how to explain the allergy better. I'll give you a, 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 a what, what, well, happened, I mean, what happened to me, I was in this, I should have had like 40 years, but I had like 12 years of, uh, well, I was on a date and I was not drinking, but I wasn't going to meetings. I was doing all the knowledge in the church and all the whole stuff. And what happened is we met at a bar with this girl and she ordered a drink. And, and the fact is, is that, I, is that the alcohol is evaporated inside that close encounter and it fell on my skin. And and I, re- I read a book of the second brain, you know, which is your stomach, your skin, and all your organs are able to bypass your front lobe and make decisions for you. Anyway, what I'm trying to say before you know it, I found myself with a drink. Oh, oh hey, oh, hey, how did I get there? You know, it's kind of like, wow. It's kind of like when you change lanes on the freeway, and you, wow. You know, I'm driving an 80 ton truck and I change lanes. I, I don't remember changing lanes. What am I doing over here? That kind of deal. Thank you. No problem. All right. Well, I got to get going. A bunch of my kids, all of them got home and they went dinner. So I better uh, deal with the natives. Thanks a lot. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Uh, next week, we'll. We have a good speaker tomorrow if you're around at noon. I mean, uh, 11 a.m. Pacific or 2 p.m. Eastern. We have Howard who does a great book study. He's doing set 10 for us tomorrow. That should be a lot of fun. Mm. So, all righty. Thank you, Steve. Nice. Thanks, Thank Steve. you, Steve. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you. Thank Bye. you very much. Right. See you later. Bye. See you. Bye. Oh, kick it. Hold on for a second. Okay.